You're listening to the Pre-Med Perspectives Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Pre-Med Perspectives. I'm Lassia, and I'm so, so excited to kick off season six with a very, very special guest. Today, I have Mr. Christian Esman, who's the Senior Director of Admissions and Financial Aid at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine, which is located in Cleveland, Ohio. He is also a podcast host of the podcast All Access Med School Admission, where he chats with other admissions office officials from other med schools to bring us the best insider information. I am so pumped to have Mr. Esman on the podcast today because I am a longtime fan of his podcast. <laughs> so Mr. Esman, welcome to my show. How are you doing today? Thank you, Lassie. That's so kind of you. I'm great. Um, I'm really thrilled to be here. I was really um, flattered that when you reached out to me and invited me to do this. I don't know if you thought I would reply or not, but when I saw it, I'm like, oh, this sounds so cool. And then I looked at your, um, looked through your, your podcast and stuff. And you really, you've really done a lot and you're interviewing a lot of people and podcasters help podcasters. So I was, I was thrilled to be able to work with you on this and, and get this set up. So great. It's happy to be here. Great. Yeah. And I mean, you say the podcasters help podcasters thing, but really, I want to take a moment to really thank you for doing this podcast because it has opened up the doors and my eyes to so many different possibilities, so many different career options, so many different med schools options. If you haven't listened to this podcast and you are applying to med school at some point in your life, seriously, you're really um, missing out. It's not just med school officials. He brings on these um, pre-med advisors and these people in really, really cool roles out there who will just inspire you to want to really pursue your dreams but um, definitely check out the podcast and today on our show we're going to talk about uh, the Case Western Reserve Medical School which has a very very unique curriculum that you can kind of shape who you want to become through and after kind of diving deep into the school we're going to talk a little bit about Mr. Esman's general tips regarding Mm -hmm the um, application process. So to start off, Mr. Esman, tell us a little bit about the three different applications that people who want to go to CASE can fill out to get into CASE. Yeah, so this, uh, it all starts off with AMCAS. And so in AMCAS, you can just check CASE Western Reserve University. Um, But like you said, we have basically three tracks to uh, a medical degree at our school. And so that's where it sometimes causes a little bit of confusion with people because they want to click the tracks through AMCAS, but you have to wait till you get our secondary application. So we have the university program, which is a traditional four-year. We have the Cleveland Clinic Lunar College of Medicine, which is a, a five-year, uh, very research-focused program. And then we have the MD-PhD or the Medical Scientist Training Program, which is like eight, sometimes nine years long. And so once you get the secondary application, applicants can indicate which program or programs they'd like to apply to. And you can apply to more than one. And I guess kind of the advantage is you get separate admissions decisions. So theoretically, you can apply to all three, but 
usually I find students are choosing two, whether it's university program and Cleveland Clinic program or Cleveland Clinic, those who really love research, they like the Cleveland Clinic program and uh, the medical scientist training program. But then you get separate admissions decisions. So separate committees are looking at them. So then you might get an interview at one, but maybe not another. Um, you, if you might get a, invited to interview at both and then you get separate decisions after that. So it does, um, it, it is a little bit different process slightly. Uh, once we get in, once a student gets into our pool, um, but it's, you know, a it, little bit for everybody, whether, but there's research in all of our tracks. So it just depends on the, the intensity level increases from university program, which is more of a scholarly piece to Cleveland Clinic program is just a little bit more intense, like a master's level research projects they do. And then MD PhD is very clear. You get a PhD. So that's super intense type of research. You kind of stole the question right out of me. I was just going to ask you uh, what the differing levels of research are within that, but it's really great how you can kind of pick whichever one you want and mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, have a chance at all three and just a chance to go to your school. In yeah, general. And if I could add to the, yeah. the university program has a separate curriculum from the than the Cleveland Clinic program. So their, their curricula are separate. Those who choose to do the MD PhD with us, they start the first two years in the university program, then they peel off for three or four years or five years and go do PhD. Then they come back in the university program and you do years seven and eight or eight or nine, their clinical years to wrap things up. So they're here yeah. a while. So now that you're talking kind of about, you mentioned masters in there, I do know that your school offers a MPH and an MBA and I think a mm -hmm. JD degree as mm -hmm. well, correct? So mm -hmm. what would the timeline be like if you wanted to participate in one of those as well? Yeah, so we have a number of joint degree programs, like you mentioned, the uh, MPH, we have MBA program, JD, bioethics, and let's see, applied anatomy, there's like one called biomedical, uh, there's biomedical engineering, then there's biomedical investigation, which is a catch-all category for nutrition, pharmacology, oh, wow. biochemistry. Um, I think I'm leaving somebody out. But anyway, we don't, what, how we advise students that are interested in these joint degree programs is wait to get into the med school first. And then if you find out you're accepted to the medical school, and then if you're interested in say the MPH, degree, then reach out to the graduate studies office or to the MPH office. And we can, and then we put people in touch with them, like with the, with the accepted student in touch with that office and say, hey, we have a student who's just been accepted. They're interested in the MPH. Can you talk with them about their program to get more information? And then you go through their application project process through graduate studies. And I'll tell you, Lassia, after doing the AMCAS application process, you guys are application pros. The no offense to the graduate studies application, but it's not nearly as in depth as the AMCAS application. So uh, it's, it's a, I, wanna, I don't wanna call it a formality, but it's a little less intense. And there's some things like they'll accept your MCAT score in lieu of having to take the GRE. Yeah, so that's a really nice. Parts of it can be expedited yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that's awesome. And so I, that was great to kind of get an overview of all you have to offer. So what would be the exact year um, you would do this? And would it be like, would you be peel off from the rest yeah, so, of the class? Or? So like uh, there's some, pro like the bioethics is four years concurrently. So okay. you would start the bioethics program uh, at the end of, so our school starts in early July, like in time of recording, this is July 7th. And we just started our first year class yesterday. 
but the graduate schools don't begin until the end of August, like a regular academic calendar. So people, students get here, medical students get here and they can settle in a little bit and then they would start bioethics. But um, that application can start shortly after acceptance, whether that's in November or if it's in February or March, it, it's, a, it's a little more um, flexible as far as um, the application process goes. They re these programs really value having medical students or PA students or students from other disciplines in their programs because it brings more engagement and perspective. Different mindsets, yeah. yes. Yeah, so, but like for an MPH at our school, it's five years. And so you chip away at the coursework in the first two years, like in the afternoons and the evenings as it's offered during the semester. And then at one point you'll dedicate 12 months to the MPH program to complete their coursework and to finish a capstone project. So sometimes it's kind of off and on, off and on, um, but it just depends on the program. But at the end of the day, you'll have your MD and your MPH, mm -hmm. so all is well. And some of them are tuition, the tuition's included. Oh, wow. So like the bioethics, like bioethics and applied anatomy, is, is, as long as you can do it within the concurrent four years that you're here, there's no additional tuition. Oh, that's great. So, so it's kind of a two for one. Buck. Yeah. 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 So, but like the MPH is a 25% fee for that fifth year, but otherwise, so it's still not a bad deal. No, not MBA, JD, different story. The business school and law school, we can't control them yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but okay. they, they, they have a separate tuition schedule. So that's a little different. No, but that, that sounds great. You're, you're like knocking out both at once either way, even though the cost might be a little bit variable mm -hmm. for some of those things. But, you know, we talked a little bit about research. We talked about these people doing capstone projects within their master's degrees. But I want to talk about how, as of right now, this is up mm -hmm. for a little bit of a change. Everyone at CASE is required to do research for a certain period of time. Would you mind touching on that a little bit? Sure. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, each one of our tracks has research built into it or embedded in it or baked in, whatever you want to say. Um, but the intensity level is different. And for the university program, all of our students have to do a scholarly project or a research project. And we have dedicated time to that. Right now, we have four months dedicated to that research block. Right now, it's in the third year. And as you mentioned, you and I were kind of talking before we hit the record button that we may have some changes coming to our curriculum, some slight modifications over the next year or two, because we need to, we want to shift our calendar to accommodate studying for step two, uh, because step one went past fail and students said they might want some time to study for step two. So we got to we're working on shifting some things around, which might move that research block around. Regardless, we have protected time for research and we define research very broadly. Students, the majority of students, when they do research projects, when they get here, they do clinical, clinically based research projects because as a medical student, the doors blow open. And so as an undergrad, sometimes you're restricted to what kind of research opportunities you have or are available to you. Yeah. But as a medical student, a lot of times, you know, you, you're interested in doing clinically based research. You're like, I've always loved orthopedics. I want to do orthopedic surgery. It's so exciting. I want yeah. to do orthopedic surgery research and work with, you know, sports medicine or something. You can go do those things. And so a lot of students, like the vast majority, I'd say around 70 to 80% of our students would you would, would pursue clinically based research. There's always then another cohort that will choose research in public health or, um, Community-based research, correct? Yeah, medical yeah. medical education. You know, whatever it is, as long as it's hypothesis-driven, that's what the project is. And then the 
it culminates where they write up their findings in a manuscript style that say that they submit for essentially a pass fail grade. If you do it, you pass. If you don't get the yeah. best data in the world, that's okay. It's about going through the process so you gain appreciation for the time and effort that goes into one manuscript because the point of this is we want to prepare you for what you're going to be seeing for the next several years because you're going to be getting journals for the rest of your life. Yes. You're going to be going to journal clubs as residents. You should be able to appreciate the work and anal- be able to understand and analyze all this, all the effort that goes into one manuscript that you're reading in these journals. And so yeah, and, and that's I mean, kind of the point. It's that preparation part to it. And correct me if I'm wrong, when, if I am wrong, but when you're applying to residency, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, being a part of research and, you know, it, it, it does play into the decision. So it just overall seems like having so many research opportunities at your school is really, really not only preparing your students for the future, but for the match as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's exactly right. I mean, it could end up being a glow on your app, on your residency application, as you've said, I I really am interested in OBGYN. And somebody might say, well, how did you arrive to that? Or what have you done to, you know, I've explored it and I've also contributed to some of the scholarly work or I did research in it. I didn't have anything publishable, but I did research there. So you're demonstrating that I'm not just interested in it um, as a pedestrian, kind of pedestrian, but I'm also like really went deep into it and I did some research. You're walking the walk. You're not just Mm -hmm. talking the talk. That's right. Awesome. So we've been talking a lot about research and it's so exciting, all the different research opportunity that your school houses, but I want to shift a little bit to the curriculum. And one of the components of your curriculum that is so very interesting to me is your case inquiry IQ learning. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that is the main vehicle for medical education in the university program. The Cleveland Clinic Learner Program does all small group learning. And what you're referring to, the IQ teams, these are small groups. And so the students, we do small group learning in the first two years. And it's a balance. It's kind of a hybrid of lecture and small group. And But then while we have lecture, that kind of frames the bigger picture topics of what we are covering that week the small group teams is where everything's brought together and, and is integrated from lecture and the things you're reading and, and stuff like that. And so it really is a very engaging and dynamic, and I'll say fun way to learn. I've, I've, people may have heard me say this before, but I, you'll see students, you'll walk by the rooms and they're smiling and they're laughing. And it's, and it's not like, you know, a, a joke for two hours, but they're having fun learning together and, yeah. and, and teaching one another. And so it, it's a, it's a cool environment to learn in. And then when you get these students around the table, these are all very bright minds with different perspectives and life experiences. And you get to see how they kind of bring those to the table and they, you figure out, oh, I can really lean on Lassia because she, you know, was, she's really good in this area. She's teaching us a lot, but you know, you know, Jennifer across the table, she has her master's in biochemistry and she is blowing us away with, in helping us pull us that way. And so it's really cool when these students get together around the table and they start to feed off of each other. Yeah. No, it's it's that collaborative learning. It's comp- it's not competition, it's collaboration. And to kind of go off of that idea, first of all, um, it I have heard from the people in your program that this indeed is a very fun um, way to learn. So it's not just coming from you. That's what everyone seems to think. So just adding a little bit to that. But I, I really like how there isn't this super competitive feel for the school from at least my point of view, because you guys also have pass fail and there's no mm-hmm. internal um, like comparisons either, which um, if you wanna 
kind of yeah. elaborate on that, so that'd be great. We've a lot of schools are pass fail and wow. or have moved to pass fail. We've been pass fail at Case Western for since like the fifties. I mean, it's yeah. it's a it's a part of our culture of our environment. Um, I think it's it, it re, we really have always wanted to foster a non-competitive, collaborative learning environment here, so that. I understand that in undergrad, sometimes it can feel kind of competitive. It can feel like you're kind of clawing your way through this. And sometimes you are, <laughs> but when you, I, the environment we want the stage we want to set when you get here is to know that, Hey, yeah, you may have had to claw your way to get here, but now you know what? We're all in this together now. Yeah. You're here to teach one another. You're here to learn from one another, share information with one another. And you don't have to be looking over your back or over your shoulder to see like who's like, you know, in the ranking behind you. It's like nipping at your heels and going to overtake you. I don't think that's a way to go through medical school. It's already challenging enough, let alone having these external kind of things you have no control over uh, that you're worried about, like in particular, like a class rank. Last year, um, due to COVID, we, we did away with AOA, which is, it's like an honor society for medical students. And other medical schools in the country are doing the same um, because we feel like, like, hey, you know, all these students are on our students and you don't accidentally just get in the medical school. Like nobody slips in the back door here. You are very well vetted to get here. And once you're here, I think that we've made the decision to not do AOA last year. And they're talking about what are we going to do going forward so that we... uh, don't need to, we, I don't think we need to differentiate our students that way. They're all amazing students. No, absolutely. I love how you just added that fact that no one gets into med school um, just like that. It's not like slipping through the cracks and how hopefully hearing that some of our viewers can decrease their imposter syndrome a little bit and realize mm-hmm. that wherever you are, wherever you end up, you are 100% welcome and invited there um, to do your best. But you're talking about collaboration within your medical students, but another really cool aspect of your school is the collaboration with the other pre-health professionals, how all of you guys share this really cool building. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit more about like your how your school houses all of these pre-professionals. Yeah. Together. So we, it, I'll start with the structure of our building and then I'll go with like how, how we work in it together. Uh, in 2019, we opened up a new uh, health education campus, it's called. And Beautiful. it's the home. It, it's a, I'm here now. I, this is my second day back in a long yeah. time. And it is stunning when we walk in here. And just as like I said yesterday, our first year started. And for some of them, because we did virtual interviews last year, this was their, not only their first day of medical school, it was their first time walking in here. Yeah. And so they've seen YouTube videos and stuff and pictures, but they've never walked through the doors. And so that was a, a um, something momentous for them too. Um, but so it's home to the med school, nursing school, dental school, and the phys- physician assistant program that we have here. And for years, we've had interprofessional education incorporated into our curriculum, but um, it's been amped up in the last couple of years because we knew we were going to have everybody under one academic roof. And so uh, we brought the university, hired a dean for our interprofessional education. And so that curriculum has now expanded. What they do is they have sessions every week where medical students are grouped with nursing students and dental students and PA students, and sometimes students from our social work school, which is across oh, campus. Wow. Okay. And they work on modules and they do community projects together. And so it, it's a way to start to build that dynamic of what a healthcare team really is. 
um, because this is how hospitals operate. This is how patients are taken care of today. It's with healthcare teams. So not just a physician walking around by themselves. And so it really has been um, a great experience, I think, for our students to start to get involved in that. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the dean of the interprofessional education got hired like in March of 2020. And I think he was coming with all these amazing ideas. And then two weeks later, shut down. Yeah. So yeah. we're excited now that we're back in person that hopefully, you know, we can get really everything churning back up again and get back up to speed with the, the IPE, the interprofessional education modules, because um, yeah. there's some cool stuff they get to do. Yeah, that's a really, really like great opportunity, like you said, to work with these teams of people, because that's what you're doing in the future. I feel like as pre-med, sometimes we feel like, oh, I'm going to be a physician and I'm going to run the entire show. But the reality mm -hmm. is when you go to shadow and get that clinical experience, sometimes Actually, a lot of the times the physician doesn't know the most about the case and it's nurses or mm -hmm. the social worker or kind of these other professionals who have so much more to add to the conversation. So mm -hmm. I think that's really great that since day yep. one, that's kind of the point. Yeah, that it, it's really what you're, yeah, you're keying in on some key, on some important points is that you start to learn the skill sets that each of these disciplines bring to the healthcare team. You understand that the types of resources a social worker can access for our patient. And I've had graduates come back and mention that they really appreciated these opportunities because now when they're in the hospital and they're resident physicians, they know when they talk to the social worker, they know, like, hey, uh, do you, can you get it? You know, you can get them access to like a transportation to get them back here next week. And like, oh yeah, they, can, they know the resources they can tap into. It just makes that conversation flow a little easier and make me maybe things more efficient versus not knowing what they can help us with. Yeah. And overall that just helps the mm -hmm. team care for the patient that yep. much better. And it's just, you know, lending a hand to each other to have the best outcome possible is always, mm -hmm. always the best situation. So we hit on a little bit of the clinical talk just now, and I want to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, one of the coolest things about case is that there is an abundance of hospitals um, around you guys. And I can only imagine the types of opportunities those house. Can you tell me a little bit about how um, it works having all these different systems around you? Yeah, I think um, Cleveland is a hidden gem for a number of yeah. reasons. Um, but when it comes to being a medical student, this place is, I hate, you know, like a candy store. And I, 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 but what, you know what I mean by that is as a medical student, you have access to four, we have four large nationally known hospitals and Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals of Cleveland. We have the third largest VA in the United States around the corner. And then we have what's called Metro Health Medical Center, which usually isn't as widely known to people outside of Northeast Ohio, but that's like our level, main level one trauma center. It is the public safety net hospital uh, for our region. And so they serve a very diverse patient population there. And so when students come here, you will have the opportunity to rub elbows with uh, physicians at Cleveland Clinic that have patients come in from around the world. Uh, you will rub elbows with physicians at the VA who are caring for patients that come in from other regions to sometimes have their care here in Cleveland. And then working with physicians at university hospitals and Metro Health, we're seeing all kinds of broad spectrum patient populations. And so it really, you can go deep. And one thing that, that COVID exposed for us or made us appreciate a little more is last year when everything shut down, so too did um, 
residency interviews. Yeah, yeah. Those went virtual too. And so our fourth years couldn't travel anywhere. Yeah. And, and also too, typically in your fourth year, you do sometimes what are called away rotations or yes, yes. Um, audition rotations, another uh, way of describing it, where you go to other programs and you spend a few weeks there and you're, you're networking and they're getting to know you, you're getting to know them and trying to get on their radar as a future applicant. That couldn't happen. And it gives you an opportunity to explore some of those super subspecialties. Well, nobody could travel. Well, here in Cleveland, we don't, we have just about every single super subspecialty you can offer. And sometimes more than one, sometimes two or three. So when our students couldn't travel, they could still get deep exposure to pediatric ENT or dermatology, not just at one hospital, but four hospitals. So those super like kind of uber competitive and I say competitive because some of these programs may have two spots yeah. or one spot. And so they're very difficult to get into. They could still do that exploration here in Cleveland in multiple sites. Yeah. And so that's one thing that I guess one thing that COVID highlighted for us, we've already always kind of known it, but yeah. like it, it just kind of highlighted a little more that our Drove students the were, were, they were not at a disadvantage because they couldn't travel potentially to other programs. No, absolutely. And overall, I think just hearing you talk about case as a a med school, just kind of what what it says is that there are so many different avenues, clinically, research-wise, community-wise, degree-wise, that you can really become the physician you exactly want to become and explore everything you want to explore um, the way you want to explore. So I think you definitely have our audience hooked on your school (laughs) for sure after that awesome description. But, you know, the reality is you do need to go through an application process to be even considered to attend um, a school. Uh, any med school, not just mm-hmm. case. So let's dive into our discussion a little bit more about um, your tips for applying to med school. And we have it broken down in a way where, where we're going to talk about the activities section first and personal letters of recommendation, secondary essays, interview, and just some closing remarks. So um, mm-hmm. to get our conversation kind of kicked off, could you tell us a little bit about how applicants can put together some really cohesive and engaging activity descriptions and what type of activities uh, kind of lend to these types of good descriptions. Okay. So in, in AMCAS, you're given 15 fields to fill in for your activities or experiences as we call them. And it's a kind of a blank slate for you. You can put in there whatever you want. And so and it's also, if you think back, if you can remember when you did, if you did common application, when you applied to college and you put in your activities and experiences, I think they give you like 155 characters. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It's, it's just about, the, it's just about as long as a tweet or like 10 characters more than a tweet. Yeah. And so like, if you were, I don't know, a tennis team captain for four years, and then you were captain and you played tennis for four years, you get 150 characters to describe that. In, that entire college period. Application. Yeah, yeah. Well, four yeah. years of it, of all your hard work <laughs> yeah. and practices and you know wins and losses and stuff. Well, for med school application, they give you 750 characters for each experience. And then of those 15, you can choose three where they give you 1,350 more characters. So these are like writing mini essays for each one. And so I think to take advantage and uh, the, I gosh, the most common question I get is how, do, how can I stand out, you know, as an applicant? And I always come back to, it's the writing. It's the way you write about these activities. Because if you think about it, Lassia, 
most pre-med students have very similar activities for yeah. the most part. You're going to have your core activities like shadowing, volunteering, maybe some community service, maybe some research. They're all pretty similar, right? Yeah. The places where you do them are different. And maybe sometimes some of the things you're doing are different, but at the core, they're Overall, very similar. Yeah. yeah. So the difference becomes, how do you write about them? Yeah. How you write about them. So don't just tell us what your role was, what your responsibilities were, but I think the real difference comes out and you tell us what you took away from it. Yeah. How did you grow from that? If you were volunteering your time where you're not getting paid at you know, 10 hours a week or five hours a week at this thing, well, then tell us what you took away from it. What did you see? What did you hear? How did you grow? Was there something challenging about it? Or something that upset you or something that made you want to, I want to you know, pound your fist on the table and say, we need to fix this, you know, kind yeah. of thing. So that's where I think students sometimes come up short because they don't give us the reflections. Yeah. And yeah. Then, then while we're reading are just the facts. Like yeah. I was, you know, delivering this or that, and I did this and that. But you never told us like, well, what I took away from doing those things. Or and maybe that's even how we see how one you of grew. the days, or what's one of the people that maybe you you can't stop thinking about in yes. a clinical sense, yes. maybe. Yeah. Or that person. It's okay that, to give yeah. those, those stories. Yeah. We have just short stories, you know. It's, it, it, that's where people stand out. And I think it's really, I mean, of course, you're the admissions officer, you're not me. But I think what you're trying to say here is you shouldn't really be writing things that someone else could put their name on and say, hey, this is mine too. Yeah. It's about that um, personalization. And it's like, it's like, for example, if you were a scribe or something, you don't need to write the job duty of a scribe. The people that are reading your application are mm -hmm. people who are in the medical profession. So yeah, you can give it a little bit, you know, go into a little detail about what, what your response is, what were you doing as a scribe? What were your responsibilities briefly, but then go into like, what'd you take away from that? You were behind the curtain every day talking, hearing the conversations between physicians and patients, seeing, hearing, you know, what they, the, the verbal and nonverbal cues. And that's the stuff that tells us that like, you weren't just, this wasn't just a job. Yeah. It was great. It's you're not getting just paid. the box you were trying to check. Yeah. 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 And yeah. it's great. You're getting paid to do it, but what a great opportunity. And boy, yeah. you soaked it up. You really yeah. soaked it up. Something else I find uh, like mistakes people can make, I think are, um, trying to fluff this, this section up. Like if, and I think it's, you know, if you made Dean's list at like eight semesters or something, don't use eight slots to tell us Dean's list. Yeah. That looks like fluff. Um, but I, I, and I, I know this is frustrating when people hear this, like we're looking for well-rounded people. And that's like, oh gosh, you know, that's like the worst cliche, but a variety of things is what I think school in general, what schools are looking for versus somebody who just did a ton of like one thing, like I, all they did was research or all they did was ultimate Frisbee. So if you have a variety of things, I think you're, I, and I, I know, understand it's hard for applicants. You're trying to be everything to everybody. Um, but I think if you're, if you want to try to, you know, make a lot of schools happy, I guess, is try to have a variety of different experiences and also show that you're not only competent in, in some skill sets, uh, when it comes like research, you know, you can, you can analyze information and stuff, but also through these reflective kind of essay, we'll call them in the experiences and explanations. You can also show that you've mastered like the soft skills. And I, I, I hate the word soft, the word soft skills. I, 
transferable like, skills, maybe. Yeah, you know, yeah. or like yeah. emotional intelligence quotients yeah. or people yeah. skills. Yeah. That those are sometimes harder to teach than the it's hard like skills. You either have it or you don't. I mean, at, at, yeah. at a certain point of it. So you're yeah. demonstrating that you have the interpersonal skills when you're writing, like you always remember this patient you had an interaction with, or you always remember this person you were helping at the at the community center down the street. That stuff is what then shows us that you have this something inside you that you have good interpersonal skills. You're an excellent communicator. That's what also helps stand out when you're writing the stuff. Yeah, and I think a lot of times people struggle because that is such an important section. And, you know, I've read some, you know, people, some of my friends apply to med school and they're like, Hey, would you mind, you know, looking over just to hear, hear if it, if it sounds, if it flows. And, and this is a question I genuinely have is at the end of every section, some people like to be, and this is exactly why I will make a good doctor because I have this skill that I gained from this, this, and this, I'm sure you kind of understand what I'm talking about, but do you necessarily need to like explicitly make lay that it out point. like that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, the majority of people that are reading these applications, are, that's not the first one they've read. Yeah, and no, they're no. able to pick up on some of the, the the things that you're trying to express. I don't always think you have to say, and this is why I want to. I can be a good doctor. Yeah. You know, like let the doctor you know, say who's going to be. Yeah, a good let, yeah. I, I, I trust the system. Trust yeah. the people that are reading it, um, that, that they can pick up that um, what you're trying to express, that you don't have to always lay it out there and make it incredibly obvious. Definitely. By doing so you, that. You talked a little, I mean, we talked a lot about research today. Um, and my next question is, are there any sorts of activities you must have on your application or it's just not going to work out for you? A lot of times people get really, really nervous to apply without research or um, right now we're going through an era where clinical hours are just not that easy mm -hmm. to get a hold of. What's your advice when it comes to uh, the activities themselves? Research comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you though, years ago when I, when I was early in my career doing this research was unusual, but now shoot, a lot of people have it. It's not like, uh, it's not a, a unicorn. Yeah. Um, but, and that's, but what's cool is that means like a lot of, there are more opportunities now colleges yeah. have amped up their game in the undergraduate research area. And so they're offering more opportunities because that attracts undergraduates to their schools. Um, so I think that's awesome. And it gives you early exposure to some of the scientific processes. Uh, but that said, don't paint every research project with the same brush. If you do research as an undergrad, and you're like, oh, I really didn't like that. Like, just know that research opportunities in the future may look different. Um, but so I think if you are interested in research, go for it. If the right opportunity falls in your lap, have at it. If it's not biomedical research, that's okay. Unless you're planning on applying like MD, PhD in the future, or like say even our Cleveland Clinic program, um, that should be more bench related research. But if you're thinking, I want to do a four-year degree and you don't have to have a PhD to do research as a physician. There are a lot of physicians that do their own research. Um, they're just, they're doing a higher level. MD, PhDs usually have their own labs and things like that. But I think the pursue a research project you're interested in, whether that's uh, like psychiatry or, or psychology research or something like that, or, or literature research, you're still applying the scientific principles to something like that. In that case, we define research very broadly. Yeah. 
yeah, I think you're just trying to say, show intellectual curiosity in whatever mm -hmm. way you want and you'll be mm -hmm. fine. And then touching- I wanted on to add one more thing, yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, you're like, what are the core things that, um, it, you were talking about clinical experiences. I was in just the about- past, yeah. prior, Yeah, see, so prior to, to COVID, I would have said, I really think a lot of med schools want to see some exposures to medicine. And uh, sometimes, oftentimes patient facing if possible. Um, and, but now after last year, that's like you alluded to, it's become more difficult. Um, hospitals are very limited. They're limiting people who come in. And if you're, if they don't have their volunteer staff up or they're not allowing shadowing, that's more difficult. So I think this year, this next application cycle and for the next couple, uh, medical schools are going to, we have to be more lenient. We have to be more reasonable in what we're expecting from our future applicants uh, because they just didn't have not had the same types of opportunities that we're used to seeing in applications. That said, I don't think you should be applying with zero clinical experiences. I, I think if that if you're coming into the application process this year with nothing, I I caution you to continue. I, I it's just far too competitive. Um, to not have something like, you know, just to, to have zero. I just, more than the competitive thing, what would you write or what would you say to why you want to be a physician when you don't know what a physician actually does? Right. And I, and I've seen some students have limited clinical experiences because they, as a, they went through some kind of health uh, related disease or illness themselves. And they've seen uh, a lot of medicine from the patient perspective. And so that's when I've seen that sometimes with very limited clinical experiences in the past, but that's not everybody. That's not the vast majority of applicants, um, thankfully. Um, but because I, I always, you feel awful for people. I feel bad when I read applications for students who are so young and they've had several bouts of cancer. Yeah. Like, nobody should go through that when you're yeah. 16, 17, 18. And that's a horrible way to see medicine. But that motivates some people to want to do this, and yeah. so. But uh, but that's not that's a very small small percentage, and I I yeah. don't want students to be inventing diseases to say you know that, that that's how they got interested yeah. in medicine. Yeah. Does that so, make sense? No, that totally makes sense, and I think that's a, a perfect segue into our next topic about um, the personal statement, right? This this beast of an essay where you have to convey why you want to be a physician. And I mean, what are some common mistakes students make in this section and how can those be fixed? It, it seems daunting, doesn't it? Oh when God. you see, when you see that, when, yeah. when you see the prompt and it says, you know, share with, what do you want admissions committees to know? I'm paraphrasing this. I don't have the right language in front of me right now, but like, basically tell us why you want to go into medicine. Yeah. And uh, that's this very similar feeling. I, I think when you were, again, go back to your years when you're applying to the year you're applying to college, like, and there's a prompts that you had to like, it's just a blank piece of paper. It's sometimes overwhelming for people. Yeah. I think some of the common, and I don't mean to be flippant about this, uh, but it's overthinking it. You know, stick, just stick to two or three themes to get you going. Maybe get that draft going. Like what have been the two or three themes in your life that have led you to where you are today that you are embarking on this application process? Sure. Was it that research experience? Was it that the pediatrician that you grew up visiting or um, the, the chat or the, the, the work that you were doing at the free clinic or something that has continued to 
draw you to this, this calling, if you will, um, to want to be a physician. That might be, to be a way to get a draft started and get things going, get the juices flowing. Um, again, talking, we talked about the kind of the common themes of experiences for pre-medical students. A lot of these personal statements are very similar too, because a lot of student, pre-med students have the sa- similar motivations. Similar exposures that lead to the motivations. Yes, yeah. that why they want to be a physician. And that's okay. We just kind of want to know what's brought you to this point. Yeah. And so I would tell students though, that, but keep it concise, keep it, I mean, if you're sticking to two or three themes, that's great. What sometimes gets students tangled up is they try to start telling some, some stories and they're introducing all kinds of characters, if you will. And it's, look, we read these morning, noon, and night, kind of starting in July through sometimes January, February. Yeah. It's a long season of reading. Yeah. And, and so you, you want to, you want to maintain somebody's interest in this. And if all of a sudden I'm trying to like figure out like, okay, who is this again now? Who are they talking about here? uh, You're, you're more liable to just go, I'm just going to scan it and see if there's anything weird in it and move on. Yeah. Um, so, but if you can kind of keep things organized, keep your, your personal statement organized and just lay out what led you to this point. And I'm not trying to make it sound it's like that easy, but it's an important part of your application, but it's not the most important part. The application is enormous. Yeah. If you do it poorly, if it's sloppy and has poor grammar, it can sink you, but it's not, it's not the most important part. So just, just tell us it's a personal statement. So make it personal. Yeah. yeah. Don't I, give us your entire resume either. Okay. It's not a narrative resume. No, totally. And I think it's like you brought up the fact that it can't be too confusing when we've been reading these forever. We continue to read them for a long period of time. It's not, I don't think it's necessarily supposed to be a piece of creative writing either. Just give us the facts so we can move on with our day type of mm-hmm. uh, situation here. No, that's great. And do you find that a lot of people in these essays, try to take things that aren't inherent, inherently medical and make them medical in a sense that, you know, someone might write, uh, do you recommend that people kind of make these broader themes and bring in different pieces and relate them back to medicine? Do you think that makes a good application or personal statement or yeah, do you think it makes it kind I, of- We've seen good? all kinds of stuff. I mean, yeah. I think what, what, I'm, what I think of when you're saying that is like, I've seen some people write, they, they have been, say, a music major. Yes. And they play what... the violin. And so they, they, they kind of write it in the way that a, some a music is composed. And yes. so they, they kind of allude to different things. We've seen that stuff. And it's, it's fine. I, I've, I, I'm not going to say, oh, Lassie, when somebody writes that, <laughs> it is an immediate, you know, let's get them here now kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it, it can pique your attention. But I'm not going to say, boy, it's the silver bullet and it's going to get you right where you want to be. Um, it, it just depends on, are you that kind of writer? And can you convey, still convey your message while weaving in this other interest of yours? And it doesn't, does bringing in playing the violin or doing a music composition, arranging it that way, muddy up the message that you're trying to convey about why you want to be a physician? Because I would worry sometimes that if somebody is like, I was a music major, I'm writing about music, but in my personal statement and all my experiences are about music, like maybe you should be a musician. 
like what we've lost like the where's the fire inside i think i'm hearing more fire about music than i am about medicine so you got to be careful if you start to kind of weave those things in no and totally and i think there's all these experiences that everyone brings to the table and like you said this isn't a resume that you're writing out so for everything you've done in your life there's other parts of the application where maybe that skill set um can can shine maybe mm-hmm. in, a, in a different part but to the next section you know another really important section of our personal statement and our entire application package are letters of recommendations and these can be a little bit scary um, for students to go out there and ask for but who and how do you suggest that people ask for um, letters of recommendation? What makes a good letter of recommendation, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera? Okay, so this is where the tough part for application applicants come in is that you'll have to do some research to find out what medical schools want from each um, for their letters of rec. Uh, it's going to vary a little bit. Some are a little more lenient than others. Others are more strict. They, they, they're telling you, we want two letters from these types of professors or these types of instructors and no, no wiggle room. What does case and want, by the way? Um, we, we, we prefer three to five letters of rec with two of them being from science instructors. Okay. And we can sometimes give a little wiggle room um, if it's like they've had tons of research and they use a research mentor as a science. So, but we say three to five um, because we have to put a cap someplace. Because if we don't put a, a number to end it, then we'll get thousands of emails saying like, can I get six? Can I have 10? Can I have 12? So sometimes we get six, but it's not like those extra letters are tipping the scales. Lasia, you know, 99% of these letters are global. Favorable. Yeah. Yes. They're very, they're very favorable. They're very um, supportive. So it's not like getting 11 supportive letters makes an admissions group go, "Mm, let's bring them in over the other person that that topped it off at five Um, because 11 people like them. So, but choose people that one, you think can write objectively about you and two are follow the the complaint, you're complying with what the medical school is requiring. So if they say two science instructors, try to get two science instructors. If you're, if you're in the early stages of your undergraduate career right now, listening to this, keep this in mind as you're going to classes. Like if you feel like you're connecting with a professor in some way, go to their office hours, make connections with them. And when you go to office hours, you gotta, if you're thinking you want to do medicine, that you gotta start to have some gamesmanship and and get to know some of your professors too. Like not just to talk about a little more in depth about the chemistry we discussed in lecture today, but get to know them a little bit. And they want to get to know you because it's just as as an instructor, oftentimes they want to know who their students are. And if they're in a classroom of like 150 people, you're just faces sitting out there unless you come to them and they get to know you and and what a great person you are and what your goals are. Um, So, and then I think the byproduct of that is if you get those kind of connections with a professor at your institution, you'll always have that connection back to your school. It's not all about just getting that letter of rec. Yeah. It's very easy to go through four years of undergrad and not have a connection with any of your instructors. And, you know, wouldn't it be nice just to be, be able to stay in touch with somebody that you yeah. really yeah. You, you stay, you stay in touch with a, a former teacher and they get to follow you through your career and stuff like no, that. I'm so, so glad it that way. That. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm a huge, not to make this about me in any means, but no. yeah, everything you're saying is so true. I'm a huge fan of office hours. Um, it just, 
forget the letter of rec you get out of it forget the better grade you get from the understanding but it's so much more fun going to class when you know who's teaching you and it's so mm -hmm. much more engaging when they know who you are and just a little anecdote here i went to office hours for one of my intro um, human nutrition classes it was one of my first classes freshman year i ended up getting a good grade in the class me and the teacher would kind of chat about um, research interests and future career interests and almost a year ago out of nowhere she rang me up and was like hey I know that you were telling me how much you wanted to do this type of research I just got a project like that can you come work for me it's like cool the relationships you build are yeah. really, really endless. And um, I also really encourage all of our listeners to start going to office hours. You have no idea what you could get out of that. Absolutely. And I will say too, I was thinking um, how that can hurt you though is, uh, now I've said there are, the majority of these letters we get are glowing, but every once in a while you get a letter that says like, you know, uh, he did great in my class. He, you know, he got the top score, ranked the best in the class or whatever. But he always came to my office and would bicker about points. So if, and that kind of turns people off a little bit, you know, that would turn a school off a little like, Ugh, like, you know, so if you're going to choose, think about who you're choosing. If you've always went to their office hours to like, you know, shake them down for more points for your test so that you make sure you keep an A in the class, that might come up in the letter. And you don't get to read these. You sign off on a confidentiality waiver yeah. and that you're not going to read this. And so a letter writer might be honest and say, great student, um, overall, really nice guy. But I will tell you, uh, he, he would, he's pretty competitive and would come to my office and, and try to, you know, argue points with me. And that can be kind of a, like, like eh. is that enough to turn somebody down from an interview? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, you're kind of looking for anything to disqualify people, I feel like, at a certain level, because there are so many some good points. Yeah, at some point, it's going to have to come back and bite you. But I think. So, uh, yeah, so just think about that. Maybe, if, yeah. if you're listening, if you've always been going and fighting for points, I think it's one thing to go and ask questions and say, why? Can you help me understand why I missed this? Or I, I felt like I really had this right. And, but I, it's another thing to go and and really be uh, argumentative about points that look, I will tell you that I just wrote this for an article today. Not everybody that goes to med school is a 4.0. In fact, like the majority of students don't have 4.0s that get into medical school. So if you think that getting a 4.0 is going to be your ticket to medical school, it may not be just that. So many, so many parts. And I, like you said, I don't think it's just one part that can bring you to the top. And it's not just mm -hmm. one part that thinks you need to have like this balance mm -hmm. of everything. And no, that's really great insight. I actually, I mean, it's like your biggest fear, right? Someone that you think is going to get you one step closer to your goal, actually reveal something about you that you didn't yeah. realize. Yeah, it's really scary. No, mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I think it's really important when asking for this letter of rec, to kind of gauge their reaction probably, right? Yeah. And, see, yeah. Like, and yeah. there's a great guide that the AMC has, and maybe after I'll send you a link to yeah. it, that um, it's for letter writers. And it's like a brochure that you can print off. And maybe as when you go to meet with them or they say, hey, let's have coffee sometime and talk before we do this and bring me your resume and that kind of thing. So make sure you have an updated resume because they might ask for it. They might ask you for your personal statement. Yeah. And then if you bring this brochure with you, they might say, you know, Lassie, is there anything else you'd like me to write about you? Is there anything to comment on? And this and this brochure has like the other areas to consider, like 
Was I punctual? Was I collaborative with other people? And that might prompt somebody who maybe it's a newer faculty. They haven't written a lot of these letters before. It might give them some extra things to kind of comment on that would be helpful to us because we see letters sometimes that, and it's no fault of the applicant because you don't get to see them, but it's like, uh, you know, she was in my 600 person organic chemistry lecture. She got one of the top grades in the class. Seems like a fine young woman. I'm sure she'd be great for medical school, period. And they just, it's, just, it's hard for them to get to know you, you know, in a big class like that. But if you meet with them and then you, you have a little more interaction with them and then you take them your little brochure about some other areas you may have to comment on, about characteristics and things that you value, that can add some more meat to that particular letter. Yeah, you have to. So make I'll send it, you that link. Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely going to include it in the show notes. And I think you're just trying to say, make it as easy as possible for them to yep. expose many different sides of you to them. So you've processed our letter of recommendation and our personal statements and our transcripts. And you're like, okay, let me send this person a secondary. So uh, your secondary, it, I'm just going to read directly what it says uh, from your website. It says, the admissions committee is interested in gaining more insight into you as a person. Please describe a significant personal challenge you have faced, one which you feel has helped to shape you as a person. Examples may include moral ethical dilemmas, a personal a situation of personal adversity or a hurdle in your life that you worked hard to overcome. And you guys can, you know, Google Case Western um, Reserve University Med School Secondary, and you guys can mm -hmm. um, see this for yourself. But I just wanted to put that out there to kind of frame this discussion a little bit. But what are some general tips you have for writing a secondary to truly show that you are committed to medicine and you are committed to this school? Yeah. So um, like you mentioned, we Last year, we started posting our secondary essays early before our secondary comes out to give people some time to kind of think things over and maybe get some, some juices flowing. Um, but, okay, I'll speak about ours and then kind of in general, um, we, we ask about, we call it the challenge essay, just to hear how about students, how they've handled adversity, how they've handled challenges. And it's very broad, like, like you read. It's a moral or ethical dilemma. Like maybe there's a time in your research lab that you were asked to fudge some numbers so that we could get this paper published. I mean, I've read those kind of things. Like ethically, you were asked by somebody and then you had to go to the PI and go, I hate to bring this up, but I was asked by my, you know, by the by the postdoc in my in our lab to, to like fake falsify data. And I, you know, so it's like every we feel like that question is broad enough. It doesn't have to be when we say challenge, I say like oh my gosh, some major family drama happened to us and here's our house burnt down. And like, you don't have, to, it doesn't have to be that. We feel like everybody's gone through something, but it should be a little bit higher level than like, I got a C minus in physics yeah. one time, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm glad you put it. that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that should not be the greatest challenge at this point. No. <laughs> but, so, um, so that helps us kind of see, because med school's hard. And it helps us kind of understand how have you navigated through some of those situations? Did you reach out to people? How did you process some of those things? Um, and because there's a lot of ambiguity in medical school too, and in medicine. Medicine is not a cut and dry, uh, you know, if this, then that thing. So how do you handle ambiguity when things don't go as well as you had hoped or didn't go the way that you had hoped? So that kind of gives us a little bit of extra insight there. We're not looking to see like, are they, is this going to get them in our med school or are they going to be a great physician, but just to understand who they are more as a person. Yeah. 
But I would say in general, then that's case specifically, but in general, when you're completing, you're going to be essayed to death, Lassia, as a future applicant. Yeah. So get ready. Yes. Um, One year from today, I will be. You're going to be in the mix. You're going to be in the mix. So get ready to be kind of essayed to death. You're going to have to you're going to have to think of all your moral and ethical dilemmas and stuff. A lot, oftentimes med school essay prompts are similar. So my advice would be don't try to cut corners and copy and paste. Now, if they're really similar and you feel like you can pull some, some content from one into another, you go ahead and do that maybe. Um, but be careful, make sure you're answering the question, the prompt that's being asked of you. Because there are times, sometimes you could we can tell like this doesn't exactly answer our question. Yeah. I wonder if it's close to University of Chicago's, and they copied theirs and stuck it in ours. So it it can make you kind of scratch your head a little bit and you raise an eyebrow, um, and, and question things. So it's it's just about we we want to gain more insight into who the student is beyond what we've been reading in the in the AMCAS application. Yeah, just another way to get to know you. And I laughed a little bit. I was um, listening to your episode with uh, your your other dean, Dr. Lena Mehta, and you were like, "Yeah, we read applications," and they say like, "Oh, this is why I want to go to the Pittsburgh <laughs> School." And they're like, "Just kidding, just kidding." I meant I meant Case Western. Yeah, I- <laughs> yeah. It happens every once in a while. I couldn't believe that actually happened, but it happens. Yeah. But to get, I want to ask you, and to your other point too, is like, how can you? express to the medical school that you're interested in attending there or that you're interested in that program. And oftentimes schools will overtly ask you like, how did you become interested in the University of Rochester? Yeah. You know, how did you, how did we get on your radar? They can, so you'll get questions like that. Or like we have one on our, our second year. It's like, if there, here's an optional essay, anything in the application that you didn't capture yet here, it's, you can tell us about it or you can leave it blank or whatever. I think that's an opportunity too. If you really have, if you're really drawn to that school and say, Hey, I've been researching your institution for a few years, or I applied as an undergrad. I almost went there and I'm still really interested in your school of medicine or my aunt lives in Cleveland. You know, just tell us, I don't think it hurts to, you know, fill in something there. If you have a connection there, you're like, Oh, my next door neighbor went to med school there. And all she does is talk about how great she had a great time there, whatever it is whether it's case or Rochester or Tennessee or whatever, take your time to that. Don't leave that blank. Look, my daughter's getting ready to apply to college this, this year. She's going to be a senior. And if there's any optional essays in these college applications, it's not optional for her. So she's, yeah, she's going to have a little bit of a get off my back, but I know how the game is played. <laughs> so, and that's why you're here. You just put us. a little yeah. bit into it, just put a little extra effort into it. It might make a difference um, at some to, point. I think what you're trying to say is use all the square footage you got, right? Mm-hmm. Like with the activities section, fill out the 750 words with as much as you can with yeah. this fill out every optional essay because it's not actually optional for the people who really come out on top. Now, that's great advice. Sometimes like as an applicant, I know it makes you nervous to fill out the optional essay a little bit. You're like, oh, does this, you know, whatever. But I'm glad that we have a very resounding message that fill out the optional thing if you- If it's genuine, if you have something genuine, or if it's not about the school, if there's something else that was not captured that you want to share, then drop it in there. And speaking of essays, a lot of schools are incorporating like some COVID disruption essays. 
and, and, and saying, hey, tell us about what your last year has been like, what's been disrupted. So it gives us some context so we understand like why you might have fewer clinical hours or why your research is, you have fewer research hours. I think just, we could probably pick up on like, well, I bet the research was postponed or you know, they said, don't come back for a while because the whole university is closed down. Don't leave that blank. Tell people how COVID disrupted your life the last year. And some people will have more difficult situations. Like maybe they had financial situations that came up and stuff. I've read tons of them this last year that said, look, all things considered, life wasn't too bad last year. Uh, we, my parents didn't lose their jobs. Um, you know, we stayed healthy, you know, but nobody in our family passed away or got super ill. But, and I will say I missed out on one, two, three, four, five things that yeah. were postponed. And that's, that, that's a perfectly acceptable yeah. response. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't no. have to be just because a family member was, uh, you know, let go from work or, you know, you lost a, a family member due to COVID, um, I think it helps put some context around what's happened to you in the last year. Yeah, no, totally. That, that was great insight into that part of the application. So we've written all our essays, we've filled out all of our applications, and now it's time to, you know, show up, show up at these interviews. So what makes someone go from being, you know, a potential interviewee to being interviewed at your school? I don't know if our listeners actually know how small of a percentage it is that people get interviewed. It's a very big deal to even get interviewed. How do you make it into the, yes, I want to see them pile? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the magic question, right? Um, And it's, you go, we pour through these applications and when you're reading through them, you feel like, I think that, I think people always ask us like, uh, what's, what's some of the most important aspects of the application? Well, I think initially it, we have to see a good track record of academic success. And because as I said earlier, med school is difficult and we're a school where classes aren't going to end when you come here. I mean, they, it amps up. I mean, it really goes to a whole new level. Yeah. It's a whole different level of smart being here. And so we need to see um, a, a, a good track record, academic track record. And then it's everything else that keeps you in the game. It's, it's the it's finding out what's motivating you to be here as a, as, to be a physician. It's reading through your experiences and do you have some of the qualities that we value as a medical school. And the letters of rec then usually kind of, um, kind of bring up the, the rear and say, all right, that's kind of how I go with an application. I form a, kind of my own personal opinion. And then I read, I read the letters of rec and go, okay, everybody seems to be really supportive of this person. I think they sound great. The letters say they're great people. Let's, let's meet them. And so I, that's a very high level view of how we kind of go through an application. Some schools use uh, like rubrics and scoring yeah. and stuff to go through applications. Everybody does things a little bit differently. They score things that they weight and they, that they put different values on. Um, but it's, but I really think like it's the GPAs and MCATs kind of get your foot in the door, but it's a lot of other things that keep you in the game. And some them, some of those things can offset like a lower GPA or a lower MCAT. Just to, we try to put the whole story together and make a decision. Now it's not always easy. Yeah. I, we got to say the no to more people than we say yes to. And oftentimes I was, when we're getting low on interview spots and I'm like, Oh, I wish we would have seen them earlier in the year. I would love to bring them in, but I hope that 
they're applying thoughtfully and strategically that while they may not be getting invited to an interview in our medical school, they are being interviewed at another medical school or others that their chances of that they'll still achieve their dreams, but we can't make it happen here, but let's, you know, hopefully keep our fingers crossed that it works out for them someplace else. Yeah, put that good energy out there. So there's another hidden tip you just put out there. Make sure you submit your app early. Um, that I, with your rolling admissions, I can understand how getting an interview at the end is probably mm -hmm. way harder than it is at the start. Awesome. So now I'm, let's say uh, we show up at your interview. What can we expect at a day at Case? Yeah. So this last year and this year will be virtual. Um, almost the entire country for medical schools will be virtual interviewing this year. We'll see what next year looks like. Um, so we last year, we had to completely pivot very quickly to do what we've been doing for literally decades in person interviewing to doing them on zoom. And it wasn't easy and it was very stressful. And, um, I was not happy last summer. I'm much happier this summer than I was last summer because it was glad just, to hear was, that. Yeah, <laughs> it was just hard. It was hard, yeah. like to, yeah. to kind of. But we threw spaghetti on the wall and we saw what stuck. We had a we came up with a really cool plan for our interview days, and so a lot of what we do is we just said, hey, because when we did in person, we did presentations and stuff in person things. We did a lot of flip classrooms. So let's, let's, let's give students our videos about our curriculum and financial aid information. And then when they came to us, we wanted to be more engaging, more talking, just talking with, let's hear your questions. Now let's talk about aspects. What do you want to know more about? So it was, it was less talking just like, Hey, welcome to zoom. And we're going to talk for the next hour about our curriculum. We were just like kind of sitting there trying yeah. to pay attention. We, we wanted to make it engaging. So it's a full day, but it's not sitting on zoom eight hours. We built in breaks when you're not interviewing. We say, go off your camera, go take your dog for a walk, go get some, go eat lunch or get a snack or something. Then come back for your second interview at three 30 or whatever. Like, so it was more convenient for our faculty interviewers and our student interviewers actually, because they didn't have to come on campus, which can be difficult finding parking and getting here and getting back to work and all that kind of stuff. So that was one of the upshots of it. Um, so we've retained a lot of our interviewers. They, they, the burnout rate was was slower because it takes a lot of effort to do this. Yeah. Um, but it was also convenient for our interviewees, but I, we got a lot of really um, nice praise from our interviewees last year saying that we put together a really um, engaging and informative and fun interview day. And that, that boy, that, that made you feel good after um, what we had to go through to get there. But um, so yeah. that's, we're gonna probably replicate. We have some things like lessons learned that from last year that we're going to change things a little bit this year. And then I think a lot of schools and we're not alone, will be incorporating in like some open houses in the fall. Like if you're invited for an interview, we have a Saturday in October and a Saturday in November and just like you can have come and visit. Cause that's one thing that, uh, and I, I, all my admissions friends, we all kind of like, we're people, people, like I love the energy in the room, like in talking to applicants. And I miss that. So we want people to come and visit our campuses and not have it be just like walking into your med school for the very first time on the first day of med school. No, definitely. And I think a lot of the times 
applicants get caught up on, oh my God, all the interview stress, it's all on me. I'm the interviewer, but it's you're interviewing the school and the school has this like pressure on them to uphold their values, their tradition mm-hmm. and their reputation. So I can, I can hear and, uh, from what you're saying, how much effort went into your interview day. And that's awesome that um, people felt that in return. Like you said, I'm sure that um, is so like gratifying uh, to hear. So, you know, I'm here at your interview. Someone's here at your interview. What's your best number one tip you have for them when it comes to the interview? Well, you'll hear this a lot. It, it'll, it'll, it's us saying, be yourself, you know, try it's good. You're going to be nervous, but try to be yourself. And, um, but I did find though, I felt like most of the people I interviewed this year were more comfortable in this setting. Like you and I are talking right now, um, because they're at home, they're in familiar settings. You're, you are, you're more comfortable in a place that you are familiar with versus sitting here in my office with me, staring across at you. And I have your application up on my screen, a little more nerve wracking. Right. Um, so I think there was some advantage there. I felt like my, my interviewees were, didn't seem as jittery in the beginning. And I'm not a very, I don't think I'm a very scary interviewer. You're um, not. <laughs> not that you're interviewing me, but you don't seem like you would be. Yeah, but we, we want to get to know the, the person, not like a stress bag. Yeah. So we purposely train our, our interviewers to be like, hey, this is not a stress interview. We're not going to crank the heat up on them and see how they cook. We want to get to know the person that's sitting in front of us, whether it's on a screen or, or you know, face to face in person. So um, practice interviewing, get, get some questions. You can Google med school interview questions. Just there, some of them are good. Some of them are like, eh, when I read them, but it's enough just to get like, to have people ask you questions, practice it on Zoom. This is very easy now. Have a friend you know, and record it. So get on your suit or your, whatever clothes you're going to wear for that get on the camera and stuff, get all your technology lined up, make sure it sounds good and you're practicing everything. Hit record and as uncomfortable as it is to watch yourself on video, like I hate seeing myself on the screen right now. Yeah, I don't mean like hearing my voice and I do a podcast, (laughs) but it is very, it can use it as like film, like, you know, after a football game or, you know, people go back and watch film. Analyze and it so play by play. Yeah. Watch, watch how you come across on the screen. You may have to be more emotive than you're used to on camera. What I mean by that is smiling more and you know, looking at the camera, I'm not saying stare at the camera like I am at you right now. <laughs> but it's okay to glance up and down at your camera, but see where that is. How's your camera positioned? Is it looking like from your chin up or from the from your forehead down? It's all those little things that can just make that experience seem a little more normal for you and your interviewer and make you feel more confident. I feel like when when you're the interviewee. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So practice being, having people ask you some questions because I think most of us, it's uncomfortable for us to talk about ourselves. I'm happy to sit here and tell you all about our medical school, but you start asking me about me and I I, like, that's important. And I, I don't like talking about myself. That's one thing I'm working on, but so that's, it's just not natural for some of us to do that, but that's why practicing helps you get into that flow. And somebody might say, Hey, Lassie, you can tell me more. Like you're discrediting some of that things you, you, that you did go into more detail about that. Or you might see that your answers are very short and they're, they don't have a lot of substance to them, or you go on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, that's and so you don't perfect. have that stopwatch in your head to go, okay, I need to wrap this up. 
So that's why that's one of the, I guess you're, we're used to being on camera now and we can record this. It's not so weird as it may have been in 2019 or before that, if I would have said record yourself on zoom and we're like, that's kind of weird. That's kinda Now weird. it's not weird. So, yeah, no, that's, that's the up, upside of COVID, um, mm-hmm. I guess. So no, awesome. So our interview is now over. Um, the eight hour day is done. The interviewee has chatted up with you. What should an interviewee do after? Um, do you recommend they send a letter of intent? When does that come in? And kind of after this interview, you know, what happens behind the curtains? Okay, so following the interview, if you, I think it's appropriate if you want to send a thank you note to do that. And these days, I would say do it by email. And if, if your interviewer doesn't provide you with their email address, you certainly have if you're being interviewed, you have access to the admissions office email. I'm sure they communicate with you. So it'd be okay to say, hey, I, I wrote up this, this thank you note and I scanned it and I sent, can I send it to you? Or I, here's an email or can you provide me with Dr. Um, you know, Dr. Smith's you know, email address? Yeah, I, can, I wanna send him a thank you. Sometimes they'll say, we don't give his, his, her email address out, but send it to us, we'll pass it along to her. So there's, you can do several things that way. And it, I'm not saying they're required, but think about this too. A lot of times people are volunteering their time to do this. They're not getting paid. They're, it's a service to the school that they like to do. And they're service taking the time. Yeah. yeah. And they're taking time away from seeing patients often. often. So I think sending a, a thank you is, is a nice thing to, just to kind of express, hey, I'm grateful for getting to meet you and the opportunity to interview at your school. And you can maybe take that opportunity to highlight a little something that you talked about or follow up on something and say, hey, that that article that you mentioned, I went and found it and read it. It was so great. You know, that little stuff like that, you never know, like how that might surface later on. Um, so again, thank yous not required, but are appreciated. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? Like it's it's just one of those things. Yeah. No, totally. yeah. Again, but I personally, I don't track like, did I get a thank you from them yeah. or did I not get a thank you from them? I'm not, I, I don't play keep score like that. Um, but it's just like, oh, you get it. And like, well, that's you, sometimes they're really very thoughtful and kind and it make, gives you a, a little warm fuzzy, right? Yeah, no, totally. Um, so then after what, at, so every medical school is different. So if you listen to my, my podcast, like I ask people all the time, I, what happens after the interview day? And they walk through their admissions committee process. So everybody's a little bit different after the interview, how their admissions committee works. Some people do rolling admissions where they're giving it, they're giving acceptance offers out on a, on a routine basis. Some hold them to the very end, like in February or March, and then send them out. But, um, you know, it, as far as like update letters and things like that, I, I don't know that I'd send a letter of intent right after an interview. Save that for down the road, um, yeah, for down the road, more into the spring. But if you have, if the, if the school accepts updates, for interviewees, you know, find that out first. Some schools are like, nope, we're good. Don't send us anything. And some schools are like, yeah, we'll take whatever updates you want or you want to send us. So as long as it's significant or, or pertinent, not like I walked a little old lady across the street today. I just want to let you know that. Okay, we get it. You're a nice person and you're really kind to, to the little old lady, but like, we don't need to know that. So it, it just makes sure it's significant or, or, or worth sending. Um, it's okay, okay too to say, hey, I just want to tell you, great job. I loved your interview day. I had a best time. And you know, that stuff, we, you can send that kind of thing too. Uh, you know, people like to hear your positive feedback. 
Um, but as far as letters of intent go, I would save those for if you find yourself on an alternate list down the road. Um, say that's that's like a that's a big that's a big shot you're putting out there. I wouldn't do it right after the interview. Um, see how things kind of play out over the next weeks or months, depending on what their process is. Save that one for later. Um, I, I did that makes me think I did an episode um, not too long ago with the pre-med advisor from Princeton. Um, and we talked about, this was like back in February, I think, um, I talked about, okay, now we're, how do you advise your students on letters of intent versus letters of interest kind of thing? So if you're really interested in that stuff, go find that episode. And, and Kate, Kate's awesome. And she's, we've worked with her for years. She knows what she's talking about and she gives some great advice. Um, and I, I dropped my own kind of advice in there too about that stuff. So that's, does that help kind of, and it's high level. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds no, on some of that no, stuff. That's, that's absolutely, you just give us a, a huge insight. Everything you've said has been such a huge insight. And um, I also recall that, you know, in your episode with, I think it was HSM Harvard, where the, the I can't remember her Melissa, name. Melissa, Melissa Friedman. Miss Melissa, Miss Friedman was saying, you know, letters of intent or sorry, um, updates are great, but they're not really going to tip the scale too much for the most part. So I think it's important that, you know, every school is different. I mean, every school like, you know, HMS or Harvard Medical School, they're Harvard. You know, they don't they probably are like, we we will let you know what, what we're like. looking for. Yeah. Um, there are other schools that like we like to hear if you're still interested or you're sending updates. That's especially helpful sometimes at schools that will accept updates as we get to the alternate list season. And we want to when we're making when we a spot becomes available, we want to know like who's interested, like who's still out there. Like oh, some schools track this stuff and say, well, we've received like a letter from them every month with just some short updates. They're still, and they're telling us like, hey, I'm still interested. Like, I'm your person. Let me know if you have a spot, I'll be there tomorrow. Yeah. And so some schools track that stuff. So it's just important to find out what their process is. Maybe you keep a spreadsheet of this stuff, like take update letters, don't take update letters. Right. That kind of thing might help you, you know, kind of avoid, you know, annoying somebody who doesn't want to be annoyed. Right, because I always, like before listening to your podcast, I thought it was kind of just standard practice to to send these update letters, but some schools definitely don't want it. Some schools do want it. So it's a great mm -hmm. idea. Like you said, I love the spreadsheet idea to throw um, all that information into one place for you to access. Mm -hmm. So awesome. Um, this has been such a blast. Um, I feel like my brain has grown and grows even more every time I listen to any of your episodes or our episode here today. But if you could leave our listeners with just one, one takeaway tip um, of what do you think makes a successful medical school applicant or candidate? Mm -hmm. um, like how do you suggest we go through this process? Your final um, tip. Apply when you feel you're best prepared to do this. And you and I were kind of talking before we hit the before you hit the record button that your what your future plan kind of looks like. And you're like, I don't know. I think I'm going to be ready, but I'm like, you'll know. Uh, but this is not this. It takes a year to apply to medical school, and this is not something you just want to. I'm just going to throw my name in a hat and see what happens. I mean, it it is it's a financial commitment. It's an emotional commitment. It's a psychological commitment. Cause even if, even if you're just like, I'm going to throw my name in the hat and see what happens when those reject emails start coming your way, they still have the same stink. 
And so you do, I would tell people like apply when you feel you're able to put the best application in front of people. And if you're getting advice from an advisor and sometimes their advice is hard to hear, uh, but they're saying, hey, I think you need to hold off and apply until after you graduate. Get that senior year under your belt. Let's get that GPA up just a little bit more. Get some more you know, experiences under your belt. Really can, you know, think about that because they usually have very good insight and have advised hundreds of other students before you who've been in similar situations. They've seen some be successful by doing, taking their advice. And they've probably seen some be unsuccessful, but going like, I don't care what they say, I'm applying. And then you get, next thing you know, you're applying again. You're going through the same process again. So uh, you'll, I think you might kind of know when you're ready to do this, but do it, understand that it's, if you apply as a, as you're a senior year, you have a lot going on your senior year. Sometimes you have capstone projects or senior thesis, and you have the stress of med school applications on top of all that. If you want to compartmentalize it and say, Hey, I'm going to enjoy senior year. I'm going to, you know, leave here on a high note. And then I'll apply next year when I don't have all that other stuff over my head. You know, think about it that way. And I just have seen too many applicants try to rush through this process and think I can cram it all in. I can study for the MCAT over winter break and get a great score. It doesn't always work out. Your plan doesn't always work out the way you had hoped. And then you're stuck. Um, you're stuck. So then you find yourself applying again. So don't apply until you think you're really ready to do this. You don't, you just don't want to wing it and like, well, I'm just going to see how it goes. If I get in great, if not, I'll figure it out. You don't want to be in the, I'll figure it out point in April when all your people or friends are graduating with jobs and stuff, I have a plan and you're still sitting there waiting to figure out what you're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great uh, last bit of summary there. Just brought everything together. So thank you once again, Mr. Usman, for joining. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. It's my absolute pleasure. It means so much that you would take time out of your day to do something like this. And for everyone listening, you need to listen to Mr. Usman's podcast. <laughs> I'm going to link it below. And um, I think you guys will really love it. I think it's called All Access Med School Admissions. They're available on Spotify and all these other streaming platforms. And I'm going to put the link below, but be sure to check that out and stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, guys. I'll catch you guys next Friday with another episode. Bye guys.